Hello? Can somebody answer the door? Hello? Hang on, I'm coming. Hurry it up! I don't got all day! God, about time. What do you want? I'm trying to eat dinner. I've come to talk to you about my lord and savior, Sam Merrill. Welcome to Fear the Fro. Shot clock by Mobley! Holy Mobley! Donovan Mitchell is 8 for 8 from downtown. Darius Garland hit it from Euclid. Lock down. Pow! A Cleveland Cavalier podcast. What do we need to add? What do we need to give the coach? The game has come down to space and opportunity. We address that. Hosted by the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Yeah, his name is Bob Schmidt. Bob, Bob Schmidt. Schmidt. Spectacular talent. That guy is a legend. Got at the buzzer! Hello, Cavs fans. Welcome to yet another pod on the heels of another blowout. But we need to have a difficult conversation. Cavalier fans, there is a return on the horizon. The return of a man pivotal to this Cavaliers organization. Now, we have had a ton of success in his absence, but he's always been painted as a part of the Cavaliers' future and a positive factor in in our Cavalier fan experience. And most of the time, I felt like that was true, especially, you know, back in the early days of this rebuild. There wasn't a lot to look forward to, and his contributions were regularly one of the bright points. But as of late, it's become apparent that maybe we were all deceived. Maybe we're actually better off without him. Now, I know that sounds like a bold take, but all the data supports it. So, I want you to put aside your rooting interests. I want you to put aside your feelings of this person as a human being. And just ask yourself a very direct, a very honest question with a very honest answer. Is Justin Rowan causing us to win games by less points? What? Where did you think I was going? Who did you think I was talking about? Of course I mean Justin Rowan. Can we just acknowledge for a second the granddaddy of Cavalier Podcasting, the Canadian half of the granddaddy of Cavalier Podcasting? Can we acknowledge that he's an absolute jinx? Okay, it's not usually my style to disparage other podcasts, but supporting the Chase Down podcast is basically funding terrorists at this point. I mean, Justin Rowan has been gone now for three games if my calculations are correct and we're winning by an average margin of 29 points a game during his absence in fact in the past four games the Cavaliers have not had an opponent score over 100 points now you may say we're playing absolute tomato cans and that is one theory another theory is that if Justin never returns from Mexico we will never lose again some of you may be too cowardly to embrace what needs to be done. But not this podcast host, a coward I am not. I am willing to suggest the reality that's in front of all of us, but we're too scared to admit it. I think it's pretty obvious. The problem is Justin Rowan, co-host of the Chase Down podcast. Now I know some of you may say, Bob, we can't trust you. 
you have a podcast, and if some reason Justin were to just vanish, I might benefit. I might fill the void, so to speak. But first of all, you're underselling the remaining co-host, the handsome one who would soldier on without him, pretending to be sad for a bit, but really being happy that we continue to kick the doors in against teams, and he would be perfectly fine. I have no doubt. The thing is here, we've identified a pattern. When Justin is not in Canada and or America, the Cavaliers dominate. When Justin is not on the Chase Down podcast, the Cavaliers have a winning differential of 29 points a game. Now, there's a lot of places that aren't Canada and aren't America, but the real question here is, how do we keep him in one of those places? Right now, he's on vacation, but certainly he's not a man of limitless funds, I would assume. At some point, he has to go home or he has to get a job in a foreign nation. And he's a Canadian. What can he really be qualified for besides stealing opportunities from Americans who want to talk about American basketball with other Americans? We're beating around the bush here, okay? This isn't personal, okay? We need to just say it. I, it, means, it seems probably personal since the Canadian slander and stuff, but that's just, that's just me playing out to my brand. Somebody at CavsPod.com said what we're all thinking. That guy is a fucking jinx. Someone should Natalie Holloway him. You heard her. Now, sure, on first glance, murder or condoning murder, I mean, we're not actually the ones who have to commit it, that may seem a step beyond the pale. And for those of you who would say that, I'd say coward. I don't even know if you want to win. You know who wants to win? Joel Embiid. You know who will do anything to win? Joel Embiid. Tonight, that man scored 70 points. And you may say that's impressive. I would say 23 free throws, motherfucker. Flop. But slander him continuously, as I may all the time. There is one thing you cannot say about Joel Embiid. You cannot say that he won't do whatever it takes. Morality, ethics, murder of the viewability of NBA basketball aside to get what he wants. And what do you want, Cavalier fans? Do you want to keep boat racing teams? Do you want to continue to have the largest margin of victory since this injury-riddled period began in the NBA, second only to Boston heading into this evening? Do you want that? Now, I can't tell if you're inspired, but just to really drive this point home, Beyond a shadow of a doubt, eight minutes of conversation to open a podcast after a blowout about another Cavalier podcast. That's top-notch stuff, and it's not over just quite yet. Good morning, Cavalier Nation. In a matter of days, an aircraft will depart from Mexico that Justin Rowan is aboard. And with that departure, we will be launching the largest aerial assault on Cavalier margin of victory in the history of basketball. Margin of victory. Those three words should have a new meaning to all of us today. Did you like winning by single digit points? No, neither did I. I wanna win in a blowout. We are united in our common interests. Now perhaps it's fate that today is the 22nd of January and you will once again be fighting for freedom, blowouts, 
and eight three-pointers from Sam Merrill. We're fighting for our right to dominate, not just to exist. And should we win this day, the 22nd of January, we will no longer be known as a middle-of-the-pack basketball team, but as a team who is stomping the dicks of teams into the dirt. I'm sorry, I'm losing track of my speech here. But the point is, Justin Rowan will not go quietly into that night sky. We will not allow him to fly without a fight. We are going to continue to blow teams out. We will survive. Today, we celebrate Justin Rowan's on Independence Day, who's with me? Shall we finally get to the basketball? I think we shall. Thank you for joining me on the Fear the Fro podcast. Bob Schmidt, your host. I mean, this is kind of what happens when we continue to dominate teams. I've already said some stats here, but you can feel it. We've won eight games in a row now. We've won 13 of our last 16 games. This stretch of basketball from December 15th to now, has there been a more satisfying stretch of Cavalier team basketball in recent memory? I think you would be hard-pressed to answer yes. Maybe that stretch of games when we came out of the gates quick in 2022, before things unraveled with injuries, that first half of the season was certainly majestic. Maybe the beginning of last season when the Cavaliers ripped off eight straight victories. That was also a thrilling section. But this is a long, sustained, fairly large sample at this point. We're talking about 16 games in which... The Cavaliers came into the evening as the second largest margin of victory over this stretch to the Boston Celtics. They were at roughly 10 and three quarter points per game of which they were winning by. We're now first place. We're winning by an average margin of 11.75 points, displacing the Celtics at the top spot, slightly below them, the Pelicans. And yes, our schedule is easier. The Celtics, in fact, have played five more games than us in this stretch since December 15th. But the point remains, that margin of victory is coming shorthanded, and this bench unit continues to thrive. The story of tonight, of course, we all know who it is. It's Sam Merrill. Comes in, first quarter, takes four shots, all from three-point range, knocks all of them down. Perfect. By halftime, he's got 20 points. He's leading the way in scoring, and he's knocked down six three-pointers out of seven attempted. When the game was all said and done, Sam Merrill led the Cavs tonight with eight three-pointers. Eight for 13 in a game in which he missed his last three shots, two of which were just bad rush shots. One was one he was kind of fumbling, and he just threw it up because the defender jumped the passing lane and missed and another that was just a last-second heave at the end of a shot clock from the corner. So uh, I have to think, perhaps, if he was in the rhythm of the game and we weren't in complete and utter garbage time in the fourth quarter, that maybe it would have been even more efficient. But again, we were robbed of near perfection because much like late in the game, Yang finally missed against the Milwaukee Bucks. It sort of felt that way as Sam was an absolute house on fire in the first quarter and knocked down his first five three-pointers before finally missing with less than two minutes left in the second. And what an introduction to relevant Sam Merrill for the Orlando Magic. They hadn't seen us since he's claimed this 
high-usage spot in the rotation that he's claimed since these injuries. And I have to think there was a part of that fan base that mostly just pays attention to the Magic who are thinking, what the fuck is happening here? I thought he might go the whole game without missing, in part because I, I thought maybe he would dial back on the gunning since we were up by an absolute shitload of points. We led by 36 points at one point, but he didn't. He didn't hesitate, and I'm glad. I want him to get him up. When he was raining threes upon this team, I started to think, you know, maybe we're setting our sights too low with the three-point competition. I'm beginning to think it's a given that he's going to be in the three-point competition. Maybe we should set our sights higher. We need to begin the campaign for the most improved player award. Hear me out. Is it possible that what Sam is doing is more impressive than the front runner, Tyrese Maxey? Sam Merrill went from playing 41 games over three seasons, just trying to crack his way into the NBA, to at the age of 27, an age when a lot of guys just resign themselves to playing overseas. He looks like a rotation mainstay moving forward, even when we're at full strength. What would it take for Sam Merrill to become a legitimate contender for most improved player? Now, you may laugh it off, but just consider this. Tyrese Maxey went from scoring 20 points a game to 26, but it takes him four extra minutes to do so, and he shoots at a worse efficiency. He's declined from 43% outside the arc to 38%. He has declined from 48% from the field to 45%. His scoring, his counting stats, they have gone up. His efficiency without Harden there has gone down. Certainly an amazing player, a guy who's likely an all-star this season. And maybe he gets extra credit for having to witness the way that Joel Embiid has absolutely destroyed the integrity of the sport. But if you take that argument out of it, is it really more impressive than a guy who is floating around in the G League as recently as the middle of last season, who now looks like he will be the first or second man off the bench for the rest of the season? The per 36 numbers, which, you know, those aren't real numbers. I would never use that as a way to say, well, see, this player is better than this player. But it does show you the permanent insanity that we are witnessing right now. Per 36 numbers for Sam Merrill would have him knocking down five three-pointers a game every game on 13 attempts per game. That speaks to the fact that Sam Merrill takes more three-pointers per possession than anybody in the NBA right now, Steph Curry included. Do you comprehend the size of the balls and confidence a player has to have to go from being on the fringes of the roster to coming into a game and putting up more three-point shots then a multiple-time MVP and world champion. It's insane. And there's an argument to be made for it's tougher to make those incremental improvements from great to exceptional than it is from nothing into whatever Sam Merrill is. If you want to make that argument, sure. But I just think there has to be something done to acknowledge to the NBA community at large the exceptional story that is what Sam Merrill is doing. I am doing my part, guys. I'm in group chats with people who don't give a fuck about the Cavs giving them updates on how many consecutive three-pointers Sam Merrill has knocked down. I am carrying water like there's no tomorrow. In a three-point contest, I will absolutely take it. Clearly, that's what the core of his game is built around. But all the other stuff that he's adding, 
He got another charge tonight, his eighth charge. He fights around screens well. He anticipates where guys are going to go well. He knows how guys are guarding him. And somehow, even after coming into a game where he makes his first four three-pointers in the first quarter, he managed to double that output. Obviously, they were going to guard him differently. But a guy who hasn't seen a hell of a lot of minutes against NBA-caliber defenders has hit the ground running and then some. And the state of the Cavaliers' depth is maybe at a place that I've never felt so good about. Certainly felt terrible about the Cavs' bench as the Knicks won that series, largely on the back of that disparity. It wasn't the starting unit that was bad. This has been well chronicled. Nobody could hit a shot, and JB, who seemingly hated Osman, was forced to play him heavy minutes because there just wasn't viable alternatives. Now you look at the outside. We've got four guys who make 60% or more of the points that they score from outside the arc. Merrill's around 85%. Dean Wade, who coming into tonight was top five in the league in terms of the percentage of his points made from outside the arc, over 75% for him. Then you've got Nyang and Levert, who are a little more versatile. They get inside more, but over 60% of their points are scored from outside the arc. And adding all these shooters while playing league-best defense over this 15-game span is just mind-blowing. I do not want to hear a fucking peep about consolidation trades involving Dean Wade and Okoro. Those guys, they're out of the conversation as far as I'm concerned. Wade has knocked down eight three-pointers in his last nine attempts over the last two games, and that's three of the last four games where he's hit four or more. Yeah, his, his shot may come and go. This may be a high point as far as his volume shooting goes at high efficiency, but to be making over 40% from outside the arc and playing stellar point-of-attack defense, we keep hearing people talk about this theoretical perfect fit wing. Tall, can hit threes, can guard guys. Well, there's a guy on the roster who makes $6 million who can do that better than most. Dean Wade is not just serviceable. Dean Wade is a linchpin in every single one of the most productive lineups that we have run out there. All the best two-man combinations, all the best three-man lineups. The one constant is Dean Wade. And you can say what you will about our dog shit schedule, but the fact is two of the core four members are out there too. They're not the ones dominating all these net rating discussions. So, and again, there's problems with those advanced stats, certainly. But my point is the people who don't think Dean is carrying his weight and is more than earning $6 million a year in salary for the next three seasons, by the way, locked in, are out of their fucking mind. And Okoro, with what he's done between what he did to Dame Lillard, then to Trey Young, to DeJounte Murray, who was coming off back-to-back game winners, he's going to have his work cut out for him as we get into the harder part of the schedule. I mean, if Giannis is back, you get the Clippers coming up. Okoro is earning his money and proving to be the elite defender that we know he is. And tonight, for those two together, collectively, to be a perfect four-for-four from outside the arc, what more? Do you want from your wing play? You wanted a guy who can knock down threes? They're doing it. You want two defenders, a guy who can smother guards, and a guy who's shutting off some of the bigger wings at a much better rate than anyone expected? Well, you have those guys. There's no need to consolidate them. And contractually speaking, you've got a guy making $6 million and a dude who's still on his rookie deal. And all I keep hearing about is these insane suggestions that dude's playing worse 
making five times the amount of money. Wiggins, uh, DeAndre Hunter. I mean, that's an obsession over name recognition. It's not based in anything that's transpiring on the actual court. Hell, Hunter's been out for like a month. Wiggins is having the worst year of his career, and still there's people who think that somehow the solution is to add money and remove production. Depth is a luxury. What else would you want? Would you want guys who have to step in and fill the void for injured starters to play like absolute shit so that you would feel better when the starters came back, that you weren't losing anything in terms of production that was sitting there unused on the bench? It's much better to have this avenue where we do all get pissed when Craig Porter Jr. doesn't play and where we do say, fuck, maybe Dean Wade needs more minutes again. He was so good when he was playing. That is a good problem. That's a rich person problem. That's like the lady in my subdivision who complains because she doesn't feel like there was an equitable balance of Christmas lights placed upon the two entrances to the subdivision. Like, who? what are these problems? How are these problems? Where I used to live, I had my mail delivered to the 7-Eleven because literally every package shipped to me disappeared. Problems about being too deep, one, can't relate. <laughs> two, those are the problems that we want. Imagine existing in a world six months ago where I told you that somebody would be suggesting Evan Mobley should come off the bench because Dean Wade is playing too well to take off the floor. Would you have believed me? There's not a person listening to this podcast who would have believed that future reality. And yet, here we are. George Nyang, who may end up just being Wade's handcuff when Mobley comes back. Look at him this month. Seven of the nine games he scored in double digits. Five rebounds a game the last three games. And the three-pointers are falling. 49% from outside the arc this month. And that's on over six attempts a game. Now let's go to CavsPod.com because I want to get to a question posed by a listener rather than just screaming at all of you more after a giant victory. Please leave a message. And now a message recorded and submitted to me at CavsPod.com. Okay, today, Brett Clapper, one of my Twitter friends, at FearTheFroPod on Twitter, posed this question. Hey, Bob. I wanted to ask you about starting lineups. I personally believe that in order to be a real contender, you need to have an elite five-man starting lineup. I'm looking at teams like Boston, the Clippers, Denver. They're all plus 15 or better in net rating on very large sample sizes. Do you think that Struess and the core four can get to that level? Let's start there because you. I paused it. You actually have kind of a second half to the question. But to your point, do I think that the original starting core can produce to a level where they're amongst the league's elite? God, I hope so. Because the standard that this replacement starting lineup has set is basically unattainable. Plus 22 is insane. And that's why it's important for people to remember context. If we get our core guys back together and they don't, have this kind of net rating or incredible offensive efficiency. We're playing tomato cans right now. And as great as we've been, that Nuggets lineup you mentioned has played over three times the amount of possessions as our most used lineup. The Boston one is well over twice as many possessions. I have to believe that to basically reinvent an offensive system with a lot of new pieces, Yang, Struess, Merrill, Craig Porter Jr., more possessions together is going to get better results. If they're movement shooters, playing together is critical. So right now, 
We're running up giant numbers, and it's great. Take the wins. But don't buy into the analytics wholeheartedly here. Because just because it's our most used lineup doesn't mean it's not somewhat of a small sample. It really is, if you step back and look at it from a league perspective. I kind of feel like Darius and Mobley are set up in a way where it's almost impossible to live up to the expectations which have just collectively built over the course of this stretch. Now, Mobley, I'm less worried about because I think you can plop in a transcendent defender to a team that's playing top of the league defense right now, and he's going to hit the ground running. And in some ways, offensively, I think his what we perceived as a negative before, his passivity, it might actually serve to sustain the ball movement that we're seeing with this offense. I think he could embrace that. I don't think he has the kind of glory hunting that makes me worry that his ego will get in the way of Jared Allen succeeding so much during this stretch. Now, I'm not inferring that Darius has ego necessarily. I just think it's much more unnatural to him because so much of his value is based on how ridiculous he is with the handle, but he's a perfectly capable catch-and-shoot player. I don't think this is about skill. I just think it's about pace and willingness to embrace a system which is lifting up so many of the other guys around him that we need. Let's get to the second half of your question, though, real quick, and then I'll wrap this up. And also, do, do you believe that that's the truth? Like, you need to have an elite five-man crew, or can it be more of a by-committee you know, switching styles depending on the opponent type of thing? Or does it need to be, we have an elite five-man unit? Personally, if this stretch has done anything for me, and I hope for some of you, it's softened you on this notion that somehow we have to have an all-star level talent at every position. And now we can just fill in that all-star at the three and D wing, then we'll be the best team in the league. I do think there's something to be said for bench depth last year i mean look at why we lost the Knicks series we didn't get outperformed by their starting unit we got outperformed by their bench unit and there was multiple games last year where we had single digit bench scoring outputs we were horrible off the bench tonight we had 60 points off of the bench it's not just because sam merrill went supernova over the course of this stretch this cavalier team is a top three bench scoring unit more than 47 points coming into the evening and with 60 off the bench it's probably closer to 50 when i look up those stats later everybody should love having a safety net to absorb the peaks and valleys of these high volume shooters that we have in donovan mitchell and darius garland it's a lot easier to deal with the fact that not every one of those core four members will show up every night it doesn't matter who it comes from, but if you knew you could get 30 points off the bench every night or 40 points off the bench every night, it would be a lot easier to win some of these games that you dropped last year or during the playoffs. Now, I think the other reason why I'm less sold on this idea that you have to have an absolutely elite starting five is because at least from this new CBA standpoint, it's harder to keep it together. I think there's something to be said for the idea that we may all want this starting unit to be what takes us to a title. But building up this bench unit is we're, it's future-proofing it to some degree. It's setting it up so that if Donovan walks away or if we decide, okay, we have to get off one of these huge max contracts, it won't be a free fall. And that should be the goal, sustained success. And I believe that if you can get 
as effective of basketball with lesser names and you get to get big contributions off what you would consider value contracts your your Dean Wade's your George Yang's your rookie year contract Isaac Okoro's that is massively beneficial that would be my concern it's not necessarily based on what's transpired on the court it's just my anticipation of how difficult it will be to continue to fight to keep this core together but it's too soon to have that conversation uh, in my opinion. In any case, we got a back-to-back, and this shit crashed in the middle of me taping it, so it's way too fucking late. I'm putting this up. Thank you to everybody who's listened to the Fear of the Fro Pod. My name is Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio. Please listen, rate, subscribe, do all those things, share it with your calf-loving friends. It's growing daily. And for the love of God, Justin, don't fucking ruin this. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.